from the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. Normally, I can't think of a great opening line, but this week I have two, and I can't decide which one I want to use, so I'm going to tell you both of them. One is the title, Did Mary Know? That's, my, that's the title of this sermon. Uh, and then the opening line, which I, I liked, is this quote. I forget who it's from, but you've maybe heard it before. Well-behaved women seldom make history. Who's heard that? Well-behaved women seldom... Yeah. All the women are like, yeah, I heard it. Yeah. <laughs> Well-behaved women seldom make history. Do you guys know what one of the most banned sections of Scripture is? Pretend you haven't read the email that I sent out yesterday. It's not the Gospel of John. It's not Romans. Not even James. No, there's one paragraph that has started actual revolutions. One paragraph that's given so much hope that people rise up and say, no, I am made in the image of God and you cannot treat me this way. It isn't just, a ruthless, it isn't just ruthless or communist regimes that have banned its reading. The British, an Anglican country, officially in their books, they're an Anglican country. They, when they colonized India, banned it, this paragraph, from being read in church. Uh, in India, at least. Uh, and of course, mind you, Britain was Anglican, uh, and they're banning part of the reading of the New Testament in one of their colonies. Uh, let me read. There's something about Guatemala here. Uh, let me read. In the 1980s, Guatemala's government dis- uh, discovered Mary's words about God's preferential love for the poor to be too dangerous and revolutionary. The song had been creating quite the stirring amongst Guatemala's impoverished masses, Mary's words were inspiring the Guatemalan poor to believe that change was indeed possible. So many regimes have banned the reading of this one paragraph, and it's from Mary. And with that, I'll invite Abby up, and she can read today's reading. Thanks. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever just as he promised our ancestors. Thanks. I think Sabby, for reading that. We will go back through it verse by verse as we go through today. So this is called the Magnificat, and that just is because in the Latin translation of the New Testament, the first word is Magnificat, uh, which means, uh, so in English, it says, my soul magnifies or my soul glorifies the Lord. Uh, and in, in Latin, they put the verb first. Uh, so it's magnificat is the first word that comes out, and so that's why they titled it. Um, actually, a lot of famous hymns and songs in the history of the English language are just titled after their first line, and so that's why this has happened too. So why would they forbid the reading of this scripture? All right, so let's walk through this. The backdrop, to kind of rewind in Luke 1, the backdrop is that the angel Gabriel visits Mary and she's afraid. I don't know if you've noticed this, that people are always just terrified when angels visit them. So this notion of like these like butterfly, I always think angels in paintings look like big butterflies. You know, they're like white and they've got the big wings. They're not these peaceful, beautiful creatures. They're terrifying. So the angel visits Mary. She's afraid. 
And so the, the angel says the first thing they always have to say to human beings, do not fear, do not be afraid. Uh, the angel says, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So, wow, I mean, what a paragraph. So, you have found favor, Mary. You're going to have a son. I mean, she's probably 15, 14 years old at the time. You're going to have a son. It will be the son of the Most High God, and he will inherit David's throne, which is an everlasting throne, an everlasting reign. So she knows her Old Testament well enough. She may not have been literate, but uh, pre-literate societies had an incredible memory. And so you'll see here, she's going through this verbiage. Uh, there was actually a, lot, a long period in Western history when a lot of uh, cynics were like, well, there's no way that a 14-year-old girl could know prose like this. Like, she couldn't riff like this on the Old Testament. Uh, and then people actually went to pre-literate societies and realize how they dealt with poetry and how they dealt with like um, oral storytelling. And that when they hear those stories, they just don't forget them. Because we, we, we depend on literature for our memory, right? Whereas when you live in a pre-literate society, you have an incredible memory because you're not always being able to use a crutch of reading. So anyway, um, she hears this from the angel and she knows it's not just that she's going to have a son. It's not just that she's going to have a great son. This son will be greater than David and that his reign will be forever. He's not just a great human, he will be the Messiah. So then she visits Elizabeth, her relative, and in their conversation, they, uh, or she rather, Mary, composes this song. So let me read through some of it again. Mary says, My soul glorifies or magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Now, sometimes when you read scripture, these spiritual words just kind of pass by unnoticed. But if you've ever learned another language, whether modern or ancient or whatever, it can be really helpful to read scripture in a language that's not your first because the words just jump out at you and you're, it's shocking. Just to see the plain scripture that you've read a million times in English, you read it in another language and it's shocking because she's saying that the Lord has been mindful of her humble state. Now, we know that if you say, well, what does humble mean? It means lowly. It means poor. It means despised. It means not thought well of by the world. But when you read in English, at least when I read, for he has been mindful of the humble estate of his servant, it's just like spiritual, it's just Christianese. It's in one ear, it's out the other. I don't really pause. And then you read it in another language and you realize, wow, that's what this is saying. And that's what this is saying in Greek here too, is that God has looked upon Mary's humiliation, right? She's pregnant, she's unwed, she's poor, she's from an unimportant area, she's not educated, she is humble, she's low. Uh, humble comes from, uh, the root means that you're close to the ground, you're close to the soil, right? She's close to the earth. She's not exalted, but God has looked on her humiliated or humble estate. But she says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. She understands, we'll talk about this later, she understands that there is a before and after happening. Uh, just like, you know, action movies haven't been the same since Die Hard, right? There's a before and after that happened, right? And so I'm not equating the two, but I'm saying there, there are these before and afters that happen in life. And she knows this is a before and after. It's not just an important thing happening. This is the next chapter in God's story. Uh, she says, uh, from, now, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. 
His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. So at this point, you might step back and say, well, yeah, this is good, this is true, but why is it so controversial? Why are people banning the reading of this? Why are the Anglican British banning the reading of this in their, in their former colonies? Uh, and that's where we get to these two verses. She says, he, God, has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. And that's where the alarm bells go off. That's where rulers read this and they're shaking in their boots. Uh, because here, uh, the, the, the mother of Jesus is saying these words, that God brings down rulers from their thrones, but he lifts up the humble. That he fills the hungry, but he sends the rich away empty. And then she finishes. She says, he has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. So she's saying all the promises that were given to Abraham, right, to be a blessing to all families, to be a blessing to all nations, not just the Jews, not just his own descendants, but to be a blessing to all families, that's here. The answer to Abraham's, the covenant given to Abraham is now coming, and it's through this son that the Lord has given me. So this is one of the most revolutionary texts in the New Testament. I'm going to give a, I, don't, I wouldn't even call it a translation. I'm going to give a commentary on the themes that are in this because it can be hard sometimes to read this religious language 2,000 years ago and, and read it or feel it like a first century person would. So here's a bit of a commentary on the theme. God sees the humiliated. This is what Mary is saying. God sees the humiliated, the small, the humble, and the poor, and he is merciful to those humiliated and lowly people. And because of what God is doing in Mary with this son that she's going to to have, all generations will call her blessed. All generations will be telling her story. There are not many people, honestly, in the world who, I'm moving away from the commentary. Uh, There aren't many people in the world who don't know who Mary is or bless her. I don't know if you know this. Has anyone ever read any of the Quran just out out of curiosity? A little bit, yeah? Uh, The Quran actually speaks more about Mary than the Bible does, which a lot of people find surprising. Chapter 19 of the Quran, the whole thing is about Mary. Now, uh, a lot of it is just mythical and stretched and not true because it was written 600 years after Mary lived and they didn't have any real sources to go on. Uh, But the the Quran talks a lot more about Mary. So it's interesting that the largest religion in the world, ours, Christianity, roughly a third of the world, and then Islam, uh, 24, 25% of the world, both revere Mary extremely Highly. So we're talking, in terms of all generations, we'll call her blessed, and she's invoking this sort of Abrahamic fulfillment in her. Uh, we're seeing all the children of Abraham, even the descendants of Ishmael, even the Muslims, bless Mary and call her blessed in a way that they don't even for Jesus. So anyway, back to the commentary. Um, she's realizing the importance of what was said to her and her turning point in history. Uh, and what's interesting is here, she is not rehearsing the story of the rich and the powerful and the rulers. She is rehearsing the story, rather, of the poor and the lowly and the servile. Why will she be blessed? Because of her action? No, it's because of the goodness of God and his action in history. So she says, his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. What she's saying here, and what's so revolutionary about about this, even if it might not seem so at first, is that she's saying God is the driver of history, not the powerful. 
not the kings, not the rulers. And you ask any Roman or any Greek, they'd say it's the powerful who drive history, right? It's the, the people who have the, the thrones and the money. She's saying God is the driver of history, not the powerful. And then this nail in the coffin is when she says that he, God, has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. So it's God himself who's doing this. And this is the dangerous idea in here. And this is why it has given so much hope and courage to people to even start actual physical wars and revolutions. Because imagine you're poor and lowly and you've been living under this tyranny for centuries. And all of a sudden you're reading this and you're like, you know what? Yeah, we wanted to overthrow our rulers for a long time, but we've never thought we had the power because we don't. But you know who overthrows corrupt rulers, who overthrows this tyranny is God himself, right? And we can come under that as his agents. We can be his servants, but it's God who overthrows princes and lifts up the humble. I'm not saying that all those revolutions were necessarily correct or incorrect. I'm saying, though, that people have found incredible hope in, uh, in Mary's words here, that God drives history, God remembers the poor, God takes down wicked rulers and lifts up the humble, that the hungry are filled and the rich are sent away empty. And this is a part of what Advent means. And as Protestants, we sometimes hyper-focus, actually, we most times hyper-focus on individual salvation, um, forgiveness of sin, which, of course, are true. Uh, And Jesus certainly came to save us from those things. But as Protestants, it's, it's easy for us to overlook the fact that he also came to bring good news to the poor, right? And to lift up the humble, as Mary is saying here, and as uh, Jesus says too. The Bible is crystal clear from the law, from wisdom, from the major prophets, minor prophets, the Psalms, and now Mary and Zechariah, uh, that God is the great reverser. And Mary knew this theme in her Bible. God is the one who brings this great reversal. He is the great uplifter of the orphan, the poor, the refugee, and the marginalized. Uh, The only reason this is maybe controversial to say is that people don't read the prophets anymore. (laughs) People don't read their Old Testament. But I mean, you cannot cannot read it without missing this theme, that God is the one who answers the cry of the poor, the refugee, the marginalized. Uh, Arguably, the most important act in the entire Old Testament, the Exodus, was um, sort of uh, germinated, or what's the word? It finds its its genesis, you could say, no pun intended on that. Uh, It finds its uh, genesis in the fact that people are crying out to God. Slaves are crying out to God for deliverance, and he answers their cry with the liberator, Moses. And he answers that cry again in Advent with the birth of his word, Jesus Christ, who also comes to liberate. Uh, Here's the the greatest mic drop in the entire New Testament, I think. Jesus is reading from Isaiah in front of the synagogue. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Sounds a lot like the Magnificat. He's reading right from Isaiah. And after he finishes it, he rolls up the scroll. And in this mic drop moment, he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I just love that. He's like, God has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives and and, and liberty to, to the poor and sight to the blind. And he says, yep, today that's been fulfilled in your presence. And he's talking about himself. Now, do you ever wonder about how we know what Mary said. Have you guys ever been reading this? And you're like, well, how did Luke know this? Right? I mean, 20, 30, 40 years later, how did Luke know? 
what Mary said. Has anyone ever, I'd like to see a show of hands. Has anyone ever, I've, there's a sort of a critical, there's a critical sort of skeptical read of the New Testament that's like, well, is this mythical? Is this stretched? Is this just the early church kind of getting their worship on and like putting words in the mouth of this poor peasant girl? This is what a lot of secular people will say. Like, oh, this 14-year-old girl, there's no way she could think with such high thoughts or remember them. And so, you know, this is just a bunch of, you know, whatever. This, you get a lot of that in the mid-20th century, a lot of that kind of junk. Uh, but if you ever uh, come upon that argument, um, know this, that we've uh, figured out a lot here in the last 30 or 40 years. So we know that Luke was not there at this scene between Mary and Elizabeth. And he certainly didn't have a recorder, right? He didn't have a, uh, an audio team that was there with great recording equipment to get what Mary said. But Luke was a scholar. Uh, Luke was most likely a slave who, it's one of the reasons he cares so much for the lowly and the slave, and Luke always is doing a good job at telling the story of the gospel through the underprivileged um, lens. But he was likely a slave from Antioch, and because he was so intelligent, sometimes if, an, if a slave really showed intellectual promise, uh, a wealthy family who owned this slave would actually send them to sort of an ancient version of like medical school or something. It's like, hey, you're, you're a brilliant slave. Well, you're going to stay a slave, but we're going to send you to go learn something really difficult that then you can serve our family in. Uh, and so then Luke would be sent to study medicine, and then essentially, uh, he would essentially be the doctor for this wealthy family that owned him, like a personal doctor. They didn't have hospitals back then. Hospitals come out of Christendom, essentially. They didn't have that. Just wealthy families had their own private doctor. And they would sometimes hire that private doctor out to other people uh, and then make money off of that slave. So Luke was likely this doctor slave. And we don't know for sure. We never find out how he meets Paul. But uh, a lot of scholars surmise that in one of the many, many beatings that Paul took, uh, someone in the church may have foreseen to bring him to this Luke for uh, medical care. Right? So either the, the family might have been a Christian family or someone in the church knew of this family or whatever. But that's likely how Paul and Luke come to meet is that Paul is getting patched up by Luke. So Luke goes on. He's kind of the scholar. He's, he's uh, extremely uh, smart and intellectual. And he reads a bunch of biographies because he's, he, uh, he takes the genre cues from all of the biographies at the time. So he reads a bunch of biographies and then he decides he's going to go and write the Gospel of Luke and Acts for this, uh, this character, Theophilus, who might be his owner. We don't really quite know. But he goes and writes the Gospel to get a true, to, to get the sort of formal and true account of what happened, not just from the disciples' perspective, but as a historian would, when you ask all the community and everybody else what happened. And so you might wonder, well, how did Luke get his sources? Like, who did Luke talk to? And we know now our history is better than when people were making those skeptical assertions. We know that Mary lived in Ephesus under the care of the Apostle John for decades at the end of her life. Uh, we may even know where her house was. Uh, and we know that Luke traveled through Ephesus a number of times with Paul. And there was only one church community in Ephesus. They, they met in house churches, but there's really just one Christian community. These are the first decades of the church. And so we actually know, we, we don't have video evidence of it, but we know basically for a fact that Luke knew Mary. Doc, the doctor and the historian Luke, who writes the gospel for us, knew Mary, who was living in Ephesus, that they were in the same city at the same church for years at a time, sometimes. And so scholars are fairly certain that the primary source for the first four or five chapters of Luke is Mary herself. So when you read Mary's words, 
They're actually only dictated by Luke, but this is actually Mary. I mean, you want to talk about female authorship in the New Testament. This is Mary's words basically being penned by Luke in a lot of the beginning of Luke, because Luke wasn't there. He didn't know. He was in a different city. He didn't become a Christian until later. So the source, that next time you read the first few chapters of Luke, know that Mary herself is the primary source for a lot of that, which is really cool. It's, it's fun to imagine Luke, the slave doctor, the slave intellectual, and Mary, this person of humble and lowly estate who knows her, uh, her humility, but also the glory in being this person at the transition of history. I imagine that they might have gotten along well, that they might have understood each other in a way that a lot of others maybe didn't. Um, a lot of people also don't know is that this Mary's song, Mary's Magnificat, follows very closely the song of Hannah in 1 Samuel 2. So Hannah, like many women in the Old Testament, her story begins with not being able to have a child. And she prays in the beginning of 1 Samuel. She says, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give to him, or I will give him to the Lord all the days of my life, and no razor shall touch his head. So there's this whole longer section about how basically she, if God will give Hannah a son, she will prepare him for like the highest priestly class, the highest priestly right. And that's this thing about the razor, that to be in this certain class of people, you could never shave your hair. Um, and so she's like, just give me a son, and I'll give him back to you. Just please give me a son, and then I'll, I'll sort of give him away to the temple to be uh, in service. And so when Mary learns she's pregnant, it's clear that her Magnificat is following like pound for pound, line for line, she's following Hannah's song. You can see that Mary is identifying herself as a kind of Hannah figure. She's humble, she's poor, but she also intends to dedicate this son that God has given her as a kind of priest to ultimate service in the temple. From the moment of his birth, he will be consecrated for full-time service in the temple. Hannah gave birth to Samuel, the prophet who anointed David. So Hannah gave birth to Samuel, who anointed David, the great king of Israel. It was a dark time in Israel, but then all of a sudden through Hannah came this new hope, right? That you'd have Samuel and then you'd have David from him ushered in. And now Mary is in the same spot, that Israel's in a dark time, but there is a new hope and a new future coming. And there will be someone who is anointed as the new David, the great David, but whose reign never ends, unlike David's. And you have to wonder here how Mary sees herself, that she's this kind of Hannah, she's a kind of of Samuel, and she will bring and anoint this new King David, this Messiah, Jesus, her son, and that just as Samuel was a prophet in David's ear, and a lot of David's Psalms, a lot of his language would have been influenced by Samuel, so, this might sound strange to you, but so Mary taught Jesus everything he knows in a way. So Jesus is, is God and he knows more than, than a normal human being could, but his vocabulary and his place in life was thoroughly influenced by Mary, his mother. Um, sociologically, uh, linguistically, you can prove this, that a great majority of the words that you know and use come from your parents. About 80 or 90% of your vocabulary is learned by the time you're five years old. Uh, so yeah, you learn some big hard words later, but most of your vocabulary is learned by the time you're five. Most of it you learned from your parents And most of it, in most people's cases, most of that from your mother. And so when you read Mary's uh, Magnificat, well, actually, let me pause. There's something I I learned when when Aubrey and I were uh, planning for our wedding. 
I remember looking at the RSVPs for who signed up for what kind of food. I don't know if Aubrey remembers this. Um, that when we would invite people, say, our own age, but then we knew them well enough, we knew their parents, that we also invited their parents, I noticed something really, really interesting, is that almost everybody ordered the same meal that their mother did. It's not that the mom was ordering for them. These people live at different addresses. It's almost everyone ordered the same meal their mother did, but that mother, her husband, their, so the father of, of like our friends, almost never got the same thing. So the mother and father would order different things, like the sort of you know, people in their maybe 50s or 60s, the mother and father would order different things, and their kids, who are our friends, would almost always order what the mom ordered, right? And I'm talking about the formation here, that people come to uh, appreciate the taste for the food that they grew up with. And normally, not always, but normally, the mom tends to be, or, or in those decades when we were growing up, the mom tended to be the primary sort of influencer of what got made in the house in terms of food. So we realized, man, this is so funny. Almost everybody ordered just what their mom did and almost never ordered what their dad did. Uh, and in the same kind of goofy way, almost all of our vocabulary comes from our parents and specifically from our mothers. And when you read Mary's Magnificat, there are only two others in the New Testament that use that kind of language all over the place. Paul does not, John does not, Peter does not use that language. But there are two who use that all the time, and it's Jesus and it's James. They talk just like the Magnificat. And guess what? Jesus and James are brothers, and they were both raised by Mary. And they use her same vocabulary all over the place. Jesus, I mean, constantly says things like, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. I mean, you name it. Jesus says this stuff all the time. James says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Mary isn't saying this, but you better believe this is coming from Mary or it's influenced by Mary. That, that language in the Magnificat comes from Mary, influenced by Hannah, into the mouths of Jesus and James. And you want to look at that generational influence of women in the Old Testament, influence of the mother. I mean, that is incredible. And so I remember meeting some of uh, the first evangelical Catholics I ever met. I was living in Guatemala, studying Spanish, and I had just been raised in a small town where a lot of people went to you know, Catholic church, but no one really cared, and no one really believed it, and no one read their Bible. And I just thought, well, that's what Catholicism is. And then I met these guys who were training to be priests, and they were like you know, 21 and, and uh, healthy, and they could have done anything they wanted to with their lives. And I remember as this like, young, sort of uh, hadn't really learned the world Protestant kid, I was like, why are you guys going to be priests? Because like, I was just thinking, you're just headed toward this like, church where no one cares, and no one reads their Bible, and no one knows anything about the gospel. Like, that's what, that was my experience. That was what it was. And man, was I blown away by these guys. These were evangelical Catholics, and they absolutely, absolutely knew their stuff. And he said, you know, I can understand how you guys think that we Catholics give Mary too much attention, but I think it's crazy that you guys don't give her more. And I've, I've never, never, never forgotten that. Like, how, how can you Protestants care so little about Mary, right? Like, here she is, the one raising the, the Son of God, right? Whose who's vocabulary, whose teaching, whose just day in and day out faithfulness so influenced the earthly character of Jesus. And you guys don't even talk about her. The Magnificat is one of the most ignored uh, sections in Protestant preaching. And so I really, I, I really took that, that rebuke. Like, you guys ought to think more about Mary. Um, all right, so James, 
Jesus, fun little tidbit there. They're both raised by Mary. They both use the same words as the Magnificat, and nobody else does. You can clearly see this generational influence there. Hannah says, uh, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. And Mary says the same thing. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. And Jesus and James continue that lineage and that teaching. Well-behaved women seldom make history. Uh, as we consider Mary, we think, well, what could be more well-behaved? You know, from God's point of view, what could be more well-behaved than that? But from any ruler, Mary is an absolute terror. Not only does she say this stuff about rulers being cast down and the humble being lifted up, but she raised Jesus, who has destroyed all the empires, basically, and all of the great rulers of the world have just cowered at the power that people who read Jesus' words uh, end up uh, overthrowing their, their thrones and their rules. God vindicates the marginalized, the downtrodden, and the poor, and the hungry. It's something we sometimes forget in our obsession with personal salvation, that God is also bringing justice to this world now. Not just about salvation then. He's also correcting and, and, and redeeming the power of sin and death now. So he's bringing justice for the poor. He's bringing judgment on the, what the Bible calls princes, or those in places of power. We don't really have princes here, or in many countries in the world anymore, at least in the West. But don't toss this verse away just because of that. It's talking about bringing vindication to the poor and judgment on people who oppress the poor, whether princes or other rulers. So did Mary know? Did she know what her influence was going to be? A lot of people think, ah, not really. But then they read the Magnificat and they really jump into this. In verse 48, she says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. And that to me says, without a doubt, yes, Mary knew. She knew that there was a turning. Not before, but from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Why? Because the new David is here. The Messiah is here. The redemption of Israel, the redemption of these covenants given to Abraham, the fulfillment, the bringing to all nations, all of it is here. The new covenant is starting now. And this is part of what Advent means. It's easy to, to fixate on the personal salvation, but Advent also means, in Mary's words and in Jesus and James, it's very clear. It means radical social reversal. Everything you thought you knew about power and importance and who mattered is out the door because of the Lord of the universe coming down. Paul says it best. I quote this a lot. Philippians 2, he says, Christ Jesus, though in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So here the Messiah is born in a stable with, with no privacy, placed in a feeding trough, working a regular trade, He's not important. He's not educated like the greats of his time. He's not even educated like Matthew or Paul would have been. He's not from a great city, and he is executed in the most shameful, base way like any insurrectionist or criminal would be. Jesus was humbled and slaughtered, but in that, he was lifted up. He was made poor that many might become rich. He was slaughtered. The book of Revelation has this great picture of this lamb who is slaughtered and slain, but still like standing in his slaughtered form. So imagine this like really bloody, 
you know, mutilated lamb standing there in their mutilated form. But yet, at that lamb, all the kings and rulers from the earth bow their knees down and worship him. So here he is, he's slaughtered, but the kings and rulers all bow their knee to him and call him the son of the living God. So when we ask, did Mary know? Mary knew. Let me pray to close us, and then I invite you guys to join us downstairs for coffee and donuts. Uh, Father, we thank you for this example that maybe we forget to read or we forget to focus on from Mary. Lord, we thank you for her words, for her song. And we thank you that, though we don't quite understand it, we know that you used Mary in amazing ways, you used Hannah in amazing ways, and that Jesus and James sound more like Mary and Hannah than they sound like David or Moses a lot of times. We thank you, Lord, for uh, the mysteries that you, that you involved us in. We thank you for calling us to know you, and we thank you for the advent that you came down, you humbled yourself, you emptied yourself, and that you saved us, but that also that you are the God of great reversals. Help us not to forget this social aspect of your good news, that you came to bring good news to the poor. Help us, Lord, in our lives to also bring good news to the lowly, to also be uh, movers for this great reversal that you have brought as you defeat sin and death here now as well. Uh, We thank you, Lord, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church, STP, or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com. Paul.com.